This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Maliha Sayed. Today, we're looking at how Azerbaijan's push for territory is affecting Armenian communities in Washington. In September, Azerbaijan launched an offensive to claim land that Armenians have called home for years. Now, Azerbaijan's armed forces have launched what they're calling an anti-terror operation in the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. The territory has an Armenian majority. Many are characterizing the attacks, which have displaced thousands, as ethnic cleansing. As tensions rose over the last year, Reporter Tasia Perry-Cook spoke with Armenians in Washington, who expressed both a desire for more public attention on this issue and a determination to preserve their culture. I had heard on the news maybe a week ago about what was happening more recently with the conflict, but what was happening a year ago when you started reporting on this? Um, Well, there have been attacks on Armenia by Azerbaijan for a while now. The region saw two wars after the Soviet Union crumbled. There was a full-on war in 2020, and last fall there were repeat attacks happening as well. Armenia has accused Azerbaijan of trying to advance into its territory after fighting between the countries broke out overnight. Um, With many civilian deaths. And so that's really how I started reporting was by connecting with community members and talking about um, how it felt for them to see their homeland on a map and what we risk by not giving it its due attention as an international community. We tend to really only give our attention once it's after the fact. I wanted to tell a story before that happened, and maybe just raise a little bit more awareness than I was currently seeing. You mentioned connecting with community members, and you open your story with one in particular. Could you tell me just a little bit about the conversation that you had with him? Yeah, so I spoke to um, someone named David. He was someone that I met in the Holy Resurrection Armenian Apostolic Church in Redmond, Washington. And he was telling me that growing up, he believed that he was Russian. His first language was Russian, and everyone around him uh, was Russian. He he really just was, um, that's what he believed. And then he realized as he got older that he didn't quite look like all his Russian friends And his last name did not sound Russian. And he realized that he was actually Armenian. And I think that um, his story could be shared by others. Um, And I think it speaks to kind of the broader story of Armenian sovereignty and and knowing yourself as a community. Nagorno-Karabakh is in the Caucasus between Europe and Asia. Armenia has in the past been a part of Russia. It was a part of Bolshevik Russia. Um, And then it was a part of the USSR. The Soviets eventually made Armenia and Azerbaijan republics within the Soviet Union and drew new borders. And it only gained independence in 1991. In many ways, like the cultures are interwoven and there's still a strong legacy of kind of Russian presence in the land. I was curious to know because you said that you met him at an Armenian church in Redmond. Is there a big Armenian population in Redmond, or do you know where people have resettled here? Um, I know that there is a pretty strong community in Redmond. Um, There's also a really awesome Armenian student association at UW, which is the first students that I met um, who were Armenian. It was through the ASA. And 
in your conversations with some of these people who we'll probably talk a little bit about later too, were there things that they wanted a Seattle audience to know? Something that um, one of the students said really stuck with me. She said that the, the statements put out by the U.S. government or by government officials, ten- the messaging tends to be, um, we urge both sides to stop this conflict. We are deeply worried about sharp escalation of the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. Russia strongly encourages the conflicting sides to stop the bloodshed. And even the word, the word conflict itself can be very misleading sometimes. We see that as a pattern throughout, um, you know, in different struggles around the world. Labeling something as a conflict frames it as a side of equal power. And um, in this case, you know, if Armenia stops fighting, there's going to be an act of genocide. If Azerbaijan stops fighting, there would be peace. You know, there's direct attacks happening and the powers are very unequal. What happened most recently with people who are living in Azerbaijan in this very particular region that is technically Armenian territory, right? Well, um, yeah, ethnically, it is Armenian. So to back up a little bit, in December of 2022, a blockade was set up, um, basically cutting off the only access point that Nagorno-Karabakh had to um, Armenia. Armenians living inside the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region in Azerbaijan say that they have been cut off from the outside world. There was no food um, coming in. There was a really severe lack of medicine, of gas, energy, internet. They cut everything off. And so there were there were videos coming out, just civilians taking videos of grocery stores with every shelf completely empty. Um, and it was incredibly weakening to the population. And then on September 19th of last month, um, they launched a full-scale attack on Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. And Within 24 hours, they had seized complete control of the area. Today, the government of Nagorno-Karabakh said it would dissolve, formally ending more than 30 years of separatist rule for the ethnically Armenian enclave inside Azerbaijan. And um, basically claimed it as Azerbaijani territory and not a disputed region as it has been internationally recognized for a while now. What is kind of the controversy around this particular territory? Why are... Armenians being forced out, and why does Azerbaijan want it? Well, to put it um, quite starkly, this is this is real-time ethnic cleansing, frankly. Over 100,000 Artsakh Armenians have been forced to flee their home, their homeland, um, and take very few possessions with them. More than 100,000 ethnic Armenians have jumped into cars, trucks, and buses, fleeing the separatist region of Nagorno-Karabakh. I think just this morning I saw the last bus uh, brought the last refugees over the border, and likely there will be um, maybe a thousand, a couple thousand residents left um, who are Armenian. And most likely they will be used as an example of reintegration. Although interestingly, they are not able to cross into Azerbaijani land. And so it's really going to be a very isolating experience for any Artsakhi Armenians who were not able to flee. It's hard to pinpoint exactly why Armenians are targeted. I think a lot of times it's easy to simplify, you know, attacks like this by saying that it's some ident- difference of identity 
Um, but a lot of times it's it just really comes down to economics and and access to resources. The reverend of the of the church in Redmond was saying that in the end the result is that innocent people are dying. As a priest, I am trying to do my best to open the hearts of the people and also open their eyes to see what is happening. Um, and being indifferent indirectly, we are encouraging it to happen again. When you say happen again, that kind of made me think of these particular people, Armenians have experienced genocide, which is something I think that you outline in your story. They've experienced a lot of change and upheaval over the last century, at least. Does this particular instance of being pushed out reflect some of those other instances of genocide, ethnic cleansing? Is it reminiscent of those conflicts? Is it happening in a similar fashion to what we've seen in years past? Yeah, so I'm sure many listeners are aware of this, but in uh, 1915, what began basically was a genocide of the Armenian people. And heartbreakingly, the reverend told me this, you know, the, the quote about indirectly encouraging it to happen again by not opening our eyes, opening the hearts of the people. This happened before the attack on uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. How are people feeling when you speak to them about these attacks or the ongoing pressure that's been mounting prior to these attacks? How are they feeling when they talk to you about it? Um, I think it's mixed. I don't think there's kind of one uniform reaction to have. It's, um, of course, really difficult for some to talk about. And for others, it's something that you can get quite fired up about and passionate about. Yeah, I think the reactions are quite mixed. But one common thread is just, you know, really hoping that people don't turn away and don't care just because it doesn't affect them. Um, and so I think the common thread is that we should all be paying much, much more attention to what's going on. And the people who you spoke to, did they indicate if they have family who are in Armenia, in Armenian regions, who are being affected? Yeah, especially my friend Christina. We've talked about this um, quite a bit. And she has cousins there. She has family that are even in the armed forces of Armenia, and it's very nerve-wracking every single time you hear that there's been fresh attacks or, you know, um, new waves of, of violence happening for Armenians. It's really scary because it's hard to be in contact with people. Um, even her family that has been in Nagorno-Karabakh, it's been very difficult to be in touch with them because of the cutoff of internet and other services. And so it's incredibly nerve-wracking if you aren't able to even you know, communicate with your family because of the violence. I was just thinking about someone Christina told me about last night, someone in the community that um, was really moved to go and support his countrymen back in 2020 when the war was happening. And um, he ended up going to fight and almost immediately was killed in action. And he was from the Seattle community and so it was very jarring. Um, to the Armenian community here. And yeah, I think that it's heavy to feel so far away. It's, it's obviously a lot to carry when your family, your people, your country are, are being attacked and, and you're way out here on the West Coast. It's, it's I think, incredibly difficult. One thing that really struck me and that I kept thinking about was it's already hard 
as someone who's immigrated, whose parents, grandparents have immigrated to another country, like so many of these people um, who are Armenian, to move to another country, you already may feel like you have to fight to preserve your culture, your traditions. But then there's this added layer of the people back home are also constantly facing threats to their home and culture. So you're not only uprooted from your home, living elsewhere, but you're also watching the people back home fight to preserve their own culture. And did anyone share how they try to preserve their identity? Uh, Did anyone talk about how they preserve their culture, preserve their identity, preserve their sense of being Armenian. How do you do that when you're doubly facing these threats to your culture? And maybe the first isn't really a threat. It's just being away from your home. But yeah, did anyone talk about that? I think that the church community itself is such a beautiful testament to that. Um, And that's really the key question of this entire article. What does it mean to be resilient in the face of ethnic cleansing and erasure? Um, I think that the church in Redmond is a is a great example of what a strong community looks like. The reverend of the church said, you know, we're a strong community that we have no matter what, never given up and always believe that our culture will keep going. Even if our enemies, our neighbors try to remove us, no matter what, we're always going to still be Armenian. In the church... It's been, it sounds like a place of refuge for a lot of people who are Armenian and a place to maybe grieve, seek solace, but connect. What are some of the traditions or ways that they celebrate being Armenian or try to preserve that heritage? Are there any things that they do that maybe make them feel more connected to their home? I mean, I think um, just it's so beautiful to belong to a community in the first place. I know myself, I grew up in the Baha'i community. My family is Baha'i. And growing up in a relatively small religious community, I think, is such a gift. Um, Everyone is your family. You're truly raised by so many beautiful people. And even if you're not very, you know, close to an individual, you still feel close in kind of an unspoken way. And, yeah, I think the time that I spent at the church was quite limited in the grand scheme of things. And um, yet I still felt a strong sense of that kind of familiar, small religious community um, feeling that I had growing up and that I'm so grateful for. They had some cellists that were playing Armenian music. They had um, food, Armenian food that was served. I think all those small elements of growing up in that community, that's, that's resilience. That's, that's pride. And I think that that's an incredibly important aspect of the fight against injustice that's happening to Armenians in Armenia and in Nagorno-Karabakh. You had referenced in your story some community efforts. It sounds like that the church is doing to address the attacks and what people are experiencing. Yeah, um, so I think another really important aspect of resilience that stems out of having a strong community here in the Seattle area is that they have done some incredible action in terms of raising funds for their families, for um, other Armenians back in Armenia and in Nagorno-Karabakh. For example, during the war in in 2020, they raised over $250,000 in funds um, to be sent back. I'm thinking about, A, your conversations with 
these people who are featured in your story, but B, your conversations with your friend. Is there something that you think the people who you spoke to who are Armenian just want to get across? Like when they spoke to you for this story, why did they agree to and and what did they want to come out of it? I think that the the greatest ask was that people pay attention. It's difficult when you feel, when you're watching your homeland be attacked, when you're uncertain of its you know, longevity in terms of what sovereignty they currently have, and watch that happen in real time while no one around you is really giving it the attention that most you know, global attacks or global crises usually receive. Um, I think that's really hurtful for anyone. And the through line has been that people should be more invested in what's happening to Armenians than they already are. And that more attention, a lot more attention needs to be given both in the media and just in terms of public discourse and the conversations that we're having. Do people who you spoke to or people who are Armenian who you know, just even personally, do they have hope? Yeah, of course. I know that Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh will always feel Armenian to Armenians. It's ethnically Armenian. There's rich, rich Armenian history all throughout the region. I mean, someone pointed out most of what we know as Turkey was once the Armenian kingdom. Um, it's an incredibly rich history that will never be forgotten. Even in Jerusalem, a quarter of, of inner Jerusalem is Armenian. It's a small country currently in terms of its modern borders, but I think the, the history is vast and rich and very deep. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Tasia Perry-Cook. It was produced by Sarah Bernard and me, Maliha Sayed. The story editor and executive producer was Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you would like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docu-series we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day. Go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the story we discussed today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Maliha Sayed. We'll be back soon with another episode.